And for the government to have admitted that is an official statement that all of this has failed. Today I sit down with Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus at the Yale School of Public Health, for a comprehensive look at what we know now about COVID-19, masks, vaccines, and treatment protocols. SARS-CoV-2 is not the last virus we're going to fight. And so we need to have this ability to use medications that work for viruses. And what is the path forward? The marketplace dies without competition. What we need is competition in the marketplace, in all things medical. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. Harvey Risch, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. It's really great to be with you again. Let's talk about the state of the science around dealing with COVID-19. Why don't we start with this recent um, Cochrane Commission study around masking, which is, I think it's supposed to be like the definitive answer that we've been uh, waiting for. Well, it's interesting that you've uh, raised a philosophical question about whether it's definitive or not. And um, I've argued in, in an essay in Brownstone that Randomized trials are not the only kind of evidence that should be used. However, when done well, they are strong evidence. The Cochrane Commission issued a report on a meta-analysis of all available randomized trials on efficacy of masking, both for sort what's called source control to keep it from spreading out from an infected person and personal protection to keep a person wearing the mask from getting it from someone else. And the end result of, of that analysis was that the masks don't do anything. It's not that there wasn't enough data to show that we don't know whether they do anything or not. It was, we have enough data and they show that they don't do anything. And there's other studies that are not randomized trials that have also looked at efficacy of masking and more than 100, actually probably 150 of those studies, and they also show nothing. So whether you call the, the Cochrane uh, Commission report definitive or the whole body of literature definitive, they should definitively show that masking is useless for control of spread of, of the pandemic. Of the virus, right? Of the virus. Yeah. Now, you know, I just wanted to mention there were some studies that were referenced, right, and with great fanfare that said, oh, no, no, they work. A few, if I recall, and the evidence around them wasn't strong, if I recall. But in this kind of a context, you can kind of, you, you say the, the body of the evidence says X, right? Or the, the, the plurality of the evidence says. Well, one of the things that I always offhandedly remark when I teach my epidemiology students is for every epidemiologic study, there's an equal and opposite epidemiologic study. And what this means is that there's a lot of variability when you do epidemiologic studies, and you can always cherry pick the ones that you want to make a case if that's what you're going to dishonestly do in order to support a preconceived idea. However, and so there are some studies that CDC has cited claiming that masks have efficacy, but it's not true because they cited 11 or 12 studies out of 160. And the, the, the overwhelming picture from those 160 studies for respiratory viruses, not just SARS-CoV-2, but influenza as well, show that masks do not help uh, control the spread of, of the infection. Let's jump into something a little bit different. I, I do remember this uh, essay that you wrote for Brownstone, which is actually quite controversial, mm -hmm. um, talking about you know that maybe randomized control trials aren't the be-all and end-all of evidence, right? And I keep hearing about how they are. So why, why don't you just give me the picture here? The essay went to the ideas of plausibility versus scientific evidence. It's easy to believe plausible ideas about science 
but until you actually have evidence for them, you don't know whether they're true. They're, they remain theories. And the idea of randomization is a theory, and it's a very plausible theory. The reason why randomization isn't always workable is because it takes a lot more people to be randomized than you would think. And the easy way to think about that is if you flip a coin 10 times and you get seven heads and three tails or vice versa, then what good is randomization done because you've got more than a twofold difference between heads and tails? And that's a big amount in epidemiology, twofold. And so that can happen by chance, even though you're randomizing flipping a coin, that can happen by chance in 10 people. In order to get the same twofold difference, if you flipped a coin 100 times, that would almost never happen. So randomizing 100 people is good, randomizing 10 people is bad. And in, an, in a randomized trial, it doesn't matter only that you've randomized everybody that comes into the trial, you also have to have randomized all the people who are the outcome events, the people with the, the disease or, or who died or whatever it is that the trial is studying, they also have to be randomized. And so even, for example, in the vaccine trials where 44,000 people were randomized, when you only have eight people in one of the, the treatment groups in, the, in the, the vaccine group who had the infection, that's not randomized. You, you've lost randomization because of that. And that's the problem, that the size of a trial is not measured in how many people go in, but how many people come out, how many events there are. And nobody except a few epidemiologists recognize this problem, and the issue of the randomization of the outcome people has to be over 50 in each arm in order for it to be, or uh, heuristically over 50. Then you get the effects of, the beneficial effects of randomization. Mm. If you don't have that, you don't have randomization, you don't have adequate randomization, and then the problem is, the whole point of randomization is to control factors that you didn't measure that could, what we call, confound, that could bias the results so that because there's imbalances in the people who are randomized but not well enough, they're imbalanced, that imbalance could affect who actually has, the, who died in the study or something like that. Maybe all the males died in, in the eight people, you know, and it was 50-50 for everybody else. Well, so now you have a big problem because you don't know whether it was the treatment or, or sex, gender, that, that mattered. And that's the problem, that you need to be able to control for those things. And in non-randomized studies, investigators know this. We do this day in, day out. As we control for everything possible that we can measure to be sure that we have accounted for all these extraneous factors that could bias the result, whereas in a randomized trial that's done that only had small numbers of people, they never adjust for anything. Mm -hmm. So all these biases creep, potentially creep back in. So there's a lack of knowledge in randomized trials that don't have enough people as to whether the randomization worked well enough or not. And that's the problem. That's why they're not gold standards unless you know you have large enough numbers of people and there isn't any kind of malfeasance you know, playing around with the results of the study like Fauci did with the remdesivir study when he said, it, oh, it's four days early, and continuing it to the end of the, the trial would be just dotting I's and crossing T's, but we really know the results. And what he said is, we've stopped the study early and opened the blinding because we actually weren't blinded to the results because we knew when it was going to show benefit, and therefore we stopped it when it showed benefit, which is a completely... Um, unlawful procedure, scientifically unlawful procedure to interrupt a trial early at a state where you know it's showing benefit. And yet he did that on public TV, you know, under the guy, the plausibility guise of it's not going to be anything different than had we let it go till the four more days. So there are bi other kinds of biases that creep into trials like that, but the randomization one works only if you have enough subjects to make it 
to make the randomization work, and that's more than people think. And then just to be clear, this is, you know, in a situation where you're not doing a randomized control trial, you would control for sex in that example that you gave earlier, right? You would control for all these different factors, so you could isolate the treatment as being the cause. Well, the most important right. thing is to know about the disease you're studying, so you know what are the factors that create it, that, that raise risk for it. And in the COVID treatment studies, the major one is the chronic conditions, the comorbidities. And mm. you see in the non-randomized trials that the people who took the active treatment medications were all sicker than the people who said, I don't really think I need this right now. I'm not so sick. I can maybe get along without taking the treatment. And so all of these studies had a hurdle to get over just to show benefit. And so they actually show more benefit than what's being represented in the magnitude of their risk because the, the people who took the drugs were sicker to start with. The criticism of these non-randomized studies is that they're somehow biased to show a, a beneficial effect. And I'm saying that the empirical data of these studies, which is in most of the studies, you can see it for yourself, um, is that they're at a disadvantage to showing an effect, and yet they still show an effect. So now we're talking about basically early treatment, right? So what is the state of early treatment today? I think the last time we talked, perhaps there were maybe 20 that had some sort of positive efficacy in combination uh, when early treatment was done. So, Well, the main ones that have been studied are ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Um, both have very substantial evidence of benefit. There's now, I think, nine or 10 studies of hydroxychloroquine, a dozen or 13 studies of ivermectin. Used, used in outpatients, early treatment that started in the first four or five days of, of symptoms. They both show a 50% re reduction in risk of hospitalization. Ivermectin shows about the same reduction in risk of um, mortality, of death. Hydroxychloroquine shows a 75% reduction in risk of mortality. For hydroxychloroquine, the studies are completely consistent. For ivermectin, there's a little more variability, but the net result is what I said, that they show significant benefit at magnitudes that are practical for use in clinical medicine um, in tens of thousands of, of patients in these studies. In hydroxychloroquine, there's over 40,000 patients that have been studied. It's also, there is what I would call an underground network of doctors who are quietly using these medications for treatment for outpatients. Um, and have helped countless hundreds of thousands of people in the United States over the last three years to survive the, the illness. Now, the wrinkle about this is in the Omicron era, this has actually become less important because most people survive Omicron without damage, either because they've had COVID before, so they have natural immunity, or they've been vaccinated and have some degree of natural immunity, or that Omicron itself is just not such a damaging illness because, in fact, it mostly doesn't invade deep into the lungs, it stays superficial, and that is the crucial fact of why people got hospitalized in the first place. So yes, there are some people who have chronic conditions that still get hospitalized with Omicron, but by and large, hardly anybody does, and so the main purpose of, of treating it is just to make people comfortable while they get through it. And you, know, and you can do that because from what I understand, both of these medicines that you mentioned have very limited side effects. Correct, they have very little. The, most, the worst side effects of them are, are GI disturbances, a little bit of nausea, sometimes uh, diarrhea, that's it. What about you know, the acceptance of these drugs in general in, in the medical sphere? Has that shifted over the last year? Not really. I think that the suppression um, motives of the government are still present. 
And so all the messaging has still been, those were discredited long ago. You know, why are you even thinking about that? And that's still to maintain the economic playing field of everything else that, that's been in widespread use now. The thing that I keep thinking about with respect to these medicines, there's, there's a profound ethical problem here. Yes. Right? I mean, of course, the, the disease isn't as serious, so you don't need to use these things as much. But on the one hand, there's still this push for vaccination. And at the same time, there's still this, you know, basically th these things were debunked a long ago. And th but there's still some people that could benefit. Well, they weren't debunked in the first place. You know, the, the outpatient medications have never been debunked. They have been suppressed. There's been propaganda against them. There's been fake studies that have been carried out against them. Um, and there's been suppression of publication of the positive results in, in the medical literature, all suppressing knowledge about how well they work. But that doesn't change the, the science, the nature of that they do work and work quite well. Um, but as I said, because of Omicron, the need has lessened quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, there, and there's all sorts of things like steroids, inhaled steroids like budesonide and, and other steroids that, and antibiotics that were part of the regimen, that are still part of, of treatment regimen, that can help. Um, so doctors who are actually engaged in treat, treating outpatient COVID are still engaged in treating it, and they're still using their various recipes that each one kind of has developed on their own. So it's a wild west of treatment, given what's happened. And um, so they, they use their best medical knowledge, as medicine has always optimally functioned to treat patients and, and uh, achieve good results. I think in California, you're not allowed to prescribe ivermectin, right? Is this correct? Probably yeah. not. Yeah. Just, I mean, what, I guess what I'm trying to get at this, this, there's this ethical question. There's something that can help. It has, doesn't have a lot of side effects. It's a cheap product. Seems like good for everybody, right? But it's being suppressed. Well, it's even, it's even worse because think about it, when hydroxychloroquine, uh, when I first wrote the, the first paper on it in May of 2020, there were no outpatient treatments. There were no other drugs. There was no treatment being given. And so what was demanded of this drug was randomized trials of efficacy. Now you think about it, if you have a drug that has no hazard, no safety hazard, been given in tens of billions of doses for more than half a century without you know, pre preventive testing of everybody to make sure they don't have an adverse reaction. So it's been given in such widespread use and is available over the counter in many countries. There is no downside for using it without any evidence of, of efficacy at all. You don't need efficacy when you're in a state of emergency and you have no other treatments that this would be supplanting or blocking. There's an ethical reason to use it even without the knowledge of its efficacy. And let alone we had evidence of its efficacy, even if it didn't qualify for the, the stilted reasoning of the FDA at the time. And yet it was still suppressed. How does accountability happen here? Accountability happens with investigation. Oh, I think people are waking up to the, the amount of lying that the government has done throughout the pandemic. Justin Hart has a book, uh, titled Gone Viral, which is a lay-level book of each chapter is on a particular lie that the government has said, and there's more than two dozen chapters 
you know, talking about and, and debunking each state government statement about how the virus and its management has gone through the last three years. And, and that's been the problem here. And where is the accountability for that? And, and for people to say, I'm sorry, but we didn't know at the beginning of the pandemic how this would be, and we did our best um, job, just violates every uh, tenet of, of ethical behavior because all of the, the knowledge of how to manage a pandemic was laid out 15 years earlier by the same people who flipped. You know, Tom Inglesby wrote a, a paper in 2006 with uh, Don Henderson, who was, hmm. um, you know, the person basically who eradicated smallpox, saying that all of the things that we use now should not be used. So lockdown shouldn't be used, travel restrictions shouldn't be used, uh, masking shouldn't be used, uh, you know, and so on. All these things that, that got flipped in the current pandemic, they wrote, Inglesby wrote in 2006, should never be used in pandemic management. He was talking about influenza at the time, but there's not a lot of difference in how you manage a large-scale epidemic between the two viruses. And so all that got flipped with no explanation, except for plausibility. Lockdown, plausible. You'll, you, you'll suppress transmission. Masking, plausible. You put something in front of your face. Randomized trials, plausible, as we've discussed. Um, social distancing, plausible. All these things are, are plausibility, but the, the scientific evidence is exactly opposite as, as they had discussed 15 years earlier. So we adopted the approach of mass vaccination to deal with the pandemic. Um, using these genetic vaccines here in the West, predominantly in the Western world. Um, what do we know about, at this point, about these methods? Well, it's interesting that we've seen the virus mutate. Of course, the virus mutates in every person. The, the virus that comes out of a person has lots of differences in the virus that went in because that's how the virus succeeds in its niche of infecting humans. And so, but some of these are strains that develop better ability to spread, and that, those are the ones that take over in the population. And we've seen five major waves of the pandemic in the United States, similar to most other parts of the world in general, because of, largely because of differences in strains that have mutated out from the previous ones. And so what we've had to cope with is temporal changes in the ability of the virus to replicate in spite of whatever immunity had been accomplished by that point in the population. And so over the first year before the vaccines became available, there were two waves. There was a, the, the initial wave. It quieted down during the summer, and then we had a fall wave again. And then the vaccines came out, and we had two more waves, one more, I forget whether it was beta, and then delta in December of 2021, or up to 2021, at the end of 2021, and then Omicron came about at that point and has gone forward, and everything has stayed Omicron throughout 2022 and into 2023. The substrains of Omicron have changed every, you know, every eight to 10 weeks, we have a new substrain of Omicron uh, except for XBB.1.5, the current one, which is lasting longer than previous ones, which makes me think that it's accomplished uh, um, a biological niche that's maximized out its ability to replicate so that nothing else is competing against it in the face of a large amount of natural immunity and whatever vaccine immunity exists. That's why it's, we had no winter wave this year. 
Hmm. We've had a, a bump, a little bump, um, but not anything like a wave like we've had in the past waves, suggesting that this is not a seasonal virus, but it's a behavioral virus. In other words, that it creates waves when the immunity circumstances of the population change. Hmm. And so you have the vaccines that were created based on the characteristics of the original Wuhan strain virus. And that worked for a while. That's the, in the mRNA versions, the two-dose uh, regimen that worked for a while. And what we found is in a combination of the loss of efficacy and the viral mutation because of vaccination rates, that by six months, those vaccines have zero benefit for getting infected. And, and in fact, if you follow those people who've had only two doses, their risk of getting infected is higher than unvaccinated people after six months. So there were six months of, of, of benefit. It, went, it goes down to close to zero by six months, and that's the characteristic of two doses. You add a booster dose of the original kind. Now, of course, we're into strains of the virus that are different than the original one that the original vaccine was made for, but the first booster was still the original strain, so it's a little bit out of date, stale as I call it. Um, and it worked for maybe two months and then started efficacy declines as well. And so what you're, you're trying to play catch up in making new boosters, the bivalent booster, for example, in the context of a virus that has already had lead time in mutating away from you. And if it takes two months to come up with a booster tailored, genetically tailored to the current strain, that strain has, is more, more or less gone. The reason why we have an idea of doing that is because this worked for seasonal viruses like influenza where the southern hemisphere was six months ahead of us. So you could go to Australia in their winter and get samples of that virus, make a vaccine for that, and six months later get it into circulation in North America and Europe and so on, where that virus is just making headway into its winter waves and you have, therefore, people vaccinated in time. Now, of course, that assumes that vaccine actually is efficacious. We've learned that the current flu uh, vaccine has only got about a six, uh, an 18% efficacy. So, but that changes from year to year, and you know, it's hard to know what to make of that. But in general, it comes from having such a long lead time. For COVID, since there's no seasonality that we've been able to prove yet, we don't have that southern hemisphere six-month lead time. And so you only have a month or six weeks before the current new substrain has peaked and starting to go away. And now you're first bringing out the vaccine that takes two weeks before it even starts working. And it takes dissemination time in the population. You can see that you're already well past the time that the vaccine would have been useful for when it applies to that strain. There's some overlap between new strains and old vaccines, but not great. And so because of this, you see the booster, the bivalent booster, has largely failed to keep up with the XBB strain. There is four or five studies that have looked at antibody responses to the different substrains of, of Omicron and the bivalent booster. And as you get later and later in the occurrence of these substrains, the, the antibody production goes down to the point where for the current XBB.1.5, it's pretty bad. As, as a, a booster to get at least measured by antibodies. So the whole paradigm has kind of failed to think that vaccination 
will reduce the spread of this illness as the primary method of control. It's failed as a public health method of control. And CDC actually admitted to this and agreed to this. August 11th of last year, they put out a statement saying the two-dose vaccine has a, a negligible benefit for controlling spread of SARS-CoV-2 and that boosters provide transient benefit that wanes. Now, for me as a public health person, I, transient means useless because we need sustained benefit. We need stable, something that lasts for six months a year to be able to have something to use for control. Something that lasts for two months is not enough because then every two months you have to repeat with something new. How is that useful? You know, especially if there's potential hazards from the treatment that you're applying, the vaccine that you're applying. You can't do that level of, of risk benefit every two months. And so it's not a sustained measure that works for public health. So, so they said at that point that the vaccines have failed as a measure of public health. They, of course, said you should get vaccinated because it's going to control your risk of getting hospitalized and, or dying. That wasn't true either, but, but that's more of a discussable issue. They, at least they said the only real government interest is suppressing, controlling spread so that people who don't want to be infected get protected from being infected against their choices against their, their, their desires. But since it doesn't work for that, then there's no more government interest in all this. There's no more mandate interest, you know, according to rational reasoning. Um, and, and then the next month in September, the CDC also said that there's no difference in, in any of the ways that you manage vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. So they were talking about healthcare workers and they were saying, testing, uh, quarantine if they're infected or test positive, uh, masking, any of those things there's no, there, that vaccinated and unvaccinated people should not be treated with any differences. Okay. And, and that's crucial for them, for the government to have admitted that is an official statement that all of this has failed. You mentioned that the virus isn't seasonal. It has some other way of functioning. So I'd like to just explain how, how best we understand it works at this stage. So my PhD dissertation was on mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics. And one of the things that I discovered is, according to the models, which are still in use today, that the, the size of an infection in the population, the fraction of the population that eventually gets the infection, is not dependent upon how you start the infection at all. It's not dependent on whether five cases or 50 or 5,000 people that are infected enter the population. What matters is something about the balance of the infectivity of the virus itself versus the susceptibility of the population. Susceptibility is not just the biological susceptibility of each person, but it's how closely they live in proximity to each other, how often they attend schools, houses of worship, and other behaviors where they can exchange the virus. We live in an atmosphere. It would be like thinking like we were living under water, we're breathing in and out water, and that water is a substance that transmits everything around to everybody all the time. And because we're social, we are all breathing the same air, the same water, so to speak. And so this is our environment. And it, it's all around us all the time. And the virus knows that or deals with that and uses that to spread itself in a passive way. But that's what's always around us. 
in larger or smaller concentrations. So the degree that we concentrate ourselves and make that process easier for the virus makes us more susceptible to getting larger numbers of people infected. Doesn't matter how it started. What matters is all of these dynamics and balances between the virus's properties and the population's properties. And that's everything about what's determined the behavior of the waves and the pandemic. The virus has gotten more infective. It's also gotten less toxic. A virus that kills people keeps it from, from spreading, right? Because what you want optimally for a virus is to make people cough and sneeze and go to work, right? That they're not so sick that they stay home. You stay home, you only infect the people at home. You go to work, you infect everybody at work. So you want to be slightly sick, but not so sick that it changes your interaction behaviors. And that's how, that, that's how viruses mutate until they solve their replication problem by maximizing their niche in the population, which is that dynamic balance between how a population absorbs and reflects the, the virus in its midst, you know, and, and balances all of that. And so if seasonality causes people to change their behavior, so they all go inside and they all work inside and they all go to school inside, then they exchange the virus better, and so the virus takes advantage of that and spreads better. And effectively becomes seasonal, but it's not actually seasonal, right. it's actually working within this dynamic that you right. just described. It's not just that cold temperatures make the virus do better, right. or something like that, right. or, or lack of humidity or something like that. That may play a role, but it seems to be all of this stuff all put together in a very dynamic way that, that's hard to quantitatively describe. Um, but that doesn't seem to be what's been controlling of the behavior of, of the COVID-19. It's as a, as a, the seasonality hasn't mattered this year. It mattered last winter. We had waves last winter and the winter before we had a wave, but that may have been just coincidental. Yeah. So, and, but right now you're saying there hasn't been a wave. And so what, the, the virus is endemic um, and it's just going to be around and some people will get sick and most of them won't have too many problems with it because it's not, as you said, I think t toxic. Right. And you said that the, these, uh, the, the vaccine approach has failed. So how do we deal with it? So the interesting thing about this is that when you have an illness that gets to the level of things that are socially accepted or tolerated, taken in stride by whole society, there's nothing stigmatizing that illness anymore. And COVID has gotten to that point, it's been that point for a while with Omicron, that influenza affects millions of people every year, or at least usually does, um, outside of COVID years, um, that some 40,000 plus or minus a few thousand die from influenza every year. They, they are people basically who have other chronic conditions. It, most healthy people don't die from flu, um, even though it can be pretty uncomfortable, like COVID. Um, and we, and we accept that. You know, we'd like to have vaccines that work. We've used vaccines. The vaccines have not been that hazardous, the flu vaccines. So by and large, they've been tolerated pretty well. Um, and so we take that in stride. That's been our model for taking in stride. We take car accidents in stride. We don't make people have to get vaccinated for car accidents. Um, you know, we, we take cigarette smoking deaths in stride. And that's 10 times the problem, that half a million people die every year from tobacco-related diseases. And the society is inured to that and takes that in stride. Why are we somehow singling out a, a virus that might now have 40,000 plus or minus or 50,000 
deaths attributed to it each year. It's probably less. But follows the same paradigm of really only people with very serious multiple comorbidities, chronic conditions, who are the ones really at risk of dying. And most everybody else uh, does pretty well. Even the so-called long COVID, which is really not long COVID, but long viral syndrome that occurs after flu and, and other respiratory viruses also, and usually is, is resolves after a few months itself. Why are we taking this any different when it's now behaving exactly the same as things that we as a society take in stride? Why are we stigmatizing people with vaccination? Why are we demanding vaccination in spite of the fact that it doesn't work when we're talking about an illness that's no different than a cold or a flu or RSV or whatever? That's a great question. <laughs> right, we shouldn't be. And, and that leads to a point that I've been trying to make since the beginning of the pandemic, which is that cases don't count. Infections don't count for how you manage a pandemic. A pandemic is managed by how bad the illness is not by who, how many people have gotten it. So, you know, we don't, nobody's cataloging cases of the cold in the United States, daily counts of colds, because it by and large doesn't matter. It's annoying, but it, it doesn't matter because it's not life-threatening for most people. People do die of the cold, the common cold, but for most people they don't. And the same is true for COVID, that we don't really care that people get it. We care that people do poorly with it. And so the way you manage this is to manage hospitalization and mortality and maybe long COVID if necessary. But those are the ways that you, the, the, you, you implement public health strategies to prevent the bad outcomes of the illness, not the illness itself. The illness is not the bad outcome. It's the bad outcomes that matter. And so now when we've got really poor um, registration of tests, so we have official testing and we have unofficial, you, you know, at-home testing that doesn't register cases. Nobody wants to register that they tested positive because then they can't go back to work for 10 days or whatever. They know that they're going to be well in seven and they don't want to stay home all that time and whether that's socially acceptable or not is a different ethical question. But the point is that there's a lot of off-the-books cases and it doesn't matter. None of that really matters. What matters is the people who go to the hospital or who die from this. They're the ones that matter. That's why we need early treatment. And we're doing actually so well because it, that it's gone to the level of endemic annoyance right now. Even with the, the bump that we've had in the winter, it's still quite low level and that will go down over time. And I'm not expecting, it's really remarkable to see the CDC's weekly charts of the proportions of the different uh, subvariant strains that the mutant strains that come out each week and how they percolate through the population and you can see over history that they come up in about four to six weeks and they go away about four to six weeks when the next one that does better than them comes up and, and has this cyclic process and XBB started that and XBB.1.5 continued that and but there are still other newer ones that come up and it looks like, are they going to take over XBB.1.5? And the answer is no. They've come up and they've gone back down. And that's why I'm very optimistic about this, that we're, we've gotten stuck in a much longer and optimized strain for current conditions of, of the way people are in that so many people have had COVID, that there's so much natural immunity that it's keeping this ability to mutate against the vaccines subdued and 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 that XBB has accomplished what it needs to do in order not to have to mutate in order to stay there in the population.
I want to build on something you just mentioned. You talked about the ability to mutate against the vaccines. What do you mean there? So a vaccine that completely blocks a person from getting infected, in other words, that the immune system is, is so ready to fight it off that when the virus comes, it gets clobbered and can't get out. So that's a sterilizing. That's called a sterilizing vaccine. Vaccines like that work. And that's what you need in order to suppress a pandemic. Those vaccines have to be given before, largely before the pandemic occurs, not in the middle of it. And so we didn't have that. And the vaccines that we have had still allow the virus to replicate and mutate. And what happens is that if there are variations in the degree to which the immune system fights different strains because the mutations that occur, then the vaccine immunity will suppress the ones that it was made for, the strains that it was made for, or the close related ones. But when the virus mutates in such a way that that immunity doesn't work well, then it just keeps mutating and gets out of that person and gets into the next person and starts its own wave. And so that's what happens, that the vaccines don't create new mutant strains, but they select for ones that are successful against vaccination. And so if something gets out and gets propagated, then it has free reign, more or less free reign against the existing vaccination climate that, don't work, that doesn't work for that particular new mutant strain. And so instead of putting up a wall against the, the virus and, and having the virus have to fight and work its way up or through the, the wall, what we've done is put up a chain link fence, which has kind of blocked the virus, but let some of it through. And what gets through is enhanced compared to getting through another chain link fence, that, that it, it allows the virus to adapt. And the only way to combat a virus that can adapt so quickly is to have a vaccine that adapts just as quickly. And since we couldn't possibly do that, then the virus has mutated faster than the vaccine has mutated. The one thing we haven't talked about is how you understand the current level of the, you mentioned that there's harms associated with these vaccines. We know there's you know, myocarditis that's been you know, documented a lot. There's been you know, sort of revelations from the Pfizer documents that they're aware of many, many different side effects at different you know, levels of, uh, you know, I guess, uh, occurrence. And so maybe give me just an overview of where you understand things are. Okay. Um, I think the volume of, of side effects, adverse events that have occurred from these vaccines is astonishing. We can argue about the numbers, but, but everybody, any objective person will say there's been a huge amount that we have never tolerated in any vaccine program in the past. Um, the manufacturer and the CDC and FDA, for that matter, have accepted that there's increased risk of myocarditis now that there's increased risk of blood clots. We have objective evidence that the spike protein in the vaccine gets to almost every organ in the body, that the carrier uh, nanolipid envelopes that contain the genetic information of, of the vaccines enhances the ability to get into the brain and everywhere else. We were told about the vaccines that it stays in the muscle and goes to the lymph nodes and that's where it, it makes the immune response. That's not actually true. It was never true. And the, the FOIA documents show that, and, and public statements of the, the scientific people in, in, of the vaccine manufacturers have said that 
the vaccine would always be known to go to various places in the body. And what wasn't known would be was the toxicity of the spike protein in all those other places. So, for example, it's established and admitted that the clotting problems occur because the spike protein gets onto the surface of red blood cells, gets onto basically everything in the bloodstream, gets onto the lining of blood vessels, and triggers clotting processes in response to this strange molecule on the surface of those cells. And that may have minor or major consequences, you know, depending on idiosyncrasies of, of the particular person, which we don't really know about. And so quantifying this is an issue, studying it is an issue, but we know that it exists. Um, the lists of all the possible things that could go wrong, manufacturers have to do that to cover themselves, even in the, context, uh, the context of legal indemnity. So I don't take much stock in the thousands of possible things that could go wrong. That to me is a theoretical list, not a, a practical, realistic list. The, the things that have largely gone wrong are um, Inflammatory issues like myocarditis, um, neurological issues that have been seen in many people, clotting issues that have been seen in many people, and perhaps fertility issues that we don't really have a good handle on yet. There's arguments on both sides. There's a lot of anecdotal people. Um, when all this first started, vaccination first started, I started getting reported reports from nurses in various hospitals in Connecticut that were emailing me saying, I've never seen more menstrual irregularities, people coming into the hospital with abnormal bleeding, you know, 60-year-old women coming to the hospital with menstrual bleeding and all this stuff going on as anecdotal reports. What consequences that would have for fertility, I don't know. You know, and all of, so this kind of evidence is not strong in a scientific way, but it's still raising the possibility that there are things going on as well. And so this is going to take another five to ten years of study to really have a better handle on if we're able to do that, if we can surmount the institutional resistance of discovering hazards of, of the vaccines and the vaccination process. But I think it needs to be done for a sense of rightness of, of our public health approach to things. So from what I'm hearing here is not very much efficacy and you know, significant known harm what sense does it make to keep these things on the market at this point? I think it doesn't. Until a few months ago, I was even thinking that, well, maybe in elderly people with lots of comorbidities, chronic conditions, who are at really serious risk of dying, say, from COVID, that maybe the vaccines would be useful. But then it turns out that they're just as much at risk of dying from the vaccines as from COVID, and, you know, maybe. And so how do we know what the balance is? We don't even know what the balance of benefit versus risk is in them. And, and given that we know that there are hazards of the vaccines as they stand, then where's the rationale for using it at all? I'm not clear that there is one. We keep coming back to these, you know, kind of the, the original off-label drugs that were used that, were, that are safe and don't have as many interactions. And yeah. it always stuns me to think about the fact that we're, we're, we're sort of avoiding these, these, these drugs. My line of thinking is that this is not the end of the story by any means, that what this has, if there's a silver lining in this, it's that there are lots of drugs that are antiviral to greater or lesser degrees, and SARS-CoV-2 is not the only virus we're worried about. You know, the RSV is, is a virus. Perhaps people have hypothesized that why we're seeing RSV in, in older children and adults 
that never happened before. You see it in very young children and elderly people, and never in the middle. And now that we're seeing in the middle, it's because those people are vaccinated and, and their immune systems have been altered in such a way that it lets the RSV gain a, a better foothold and infect them. Um, and that's a serious potential risk. But here we have all these antivirals that could be used to treat it. And as long as the, these genetic antiviral, uh, generic antivirals are being suppressed because they're cheap, we have a big problem. That is the problem. In fact, Congress set out to block that problem in the 21st Century Cures Act in 2016, mm. which in Section 3022 says that regulatory agencies shall use all available evidence for deciding upon approval of agents and not just randomized controlled trials. Of course, FDA totally ignored that. They sailed through that demanding randomized trials of hydroxychloroquine, even though there was a pile of evidence already showing its benefit. You know, but that's what Congress intended because of large amounts of public pressure that FDA was demanding randomized trials, which was putting a stranglehold on the development of new medications, mostly for cancer. Hmm. But it applies also now to repurposed generic medications, that we need an avenue of combating the pharma stranglehold on randomized trials or nothing, and that only medications can be used if they've been randomized trialed at, at five to ten million dollars or more of it per trial, which means no generic medication will ever be done that way. And, and so this is our roadblock, that there are medications, there are antivirals that are dogma from medical school that viruses have no treatments. Well, AIDS has a treatment, it has antivirals, but we've learned that viruses, there is no magic, single magic bullet for a virus. If you approach a virus by multiple drugs all at the same time to clobber it. And AIDS showed that. And what we've learned now is SARS-CoV-2 has exactly the same features that, you know, hydroxychloroquine and zinc and doxycycline or azithromycin and steroids and vitamin D. Everybody should be taking vitamin D. All these things are the way that you attack a, a virus infection, a respiratory virus infection. And they work. This works. And, and this is a paradigm that's been suppressed. But the whole point is, SARS-CoV-2 is not the last virus we're going to fight. And so we need to have this ability to use medications that work for viruses, just like we have them that work for bacteria. And, we, and we've got these things, and we've got to be trying. Do, do, does hydroxychloroquine work for the flu? I don't know. Maybe. It has properties similar to SARS-CoV-2, so maybe it does. You know, we've, we've got to be trying and using all these things and fighting back against the tyranny of, of pharma to suppress the ability to, to treat viruses until it gets to their level of economic benefit. There's maybe some silver lining here because I think a pretty significant portion of the population has been alerted to the fact that there's all sorts of treatments for all sorts of things that were not the orthodox way, but nonetheless, you know, there were medical practitioners and even in broad, in plain sight, scientific literature that would say, oh, look, this, this can work for this right. situation. Right, right. And, and there is really a, a whole subversive industry opening up to do this. Doctors who are treating COVID and other things with their best knowledge, in spite of 
the, the, the formal consensus statements of this medical society and that medical, the, the American Society of X doctors and the American Society of Y doctors and whatever. And they're, they're contrived and fake consensus statements that have no bearing on the reality of it. That's only because they would lose their pharma funding, you know, if, if they don't say that or they say something else. And the whole corrupt medical system is, is just the rate limiting step for acquiring adequate supported medical knowledge of how to treat various diseases that we've been coping with for three years or 30 years or longer. So what do you see as the best way to, you know, for lack of a better term, normalize um, this type of approach to drugs as, as you've been outlining here? So, you know, um, the marketplace dies without competition. Um, what we need is competition in the marketplace, in all things medical. That's why alternative doctors groups that are using these methods that work, that get into the public domain, knowledge of them gets into the public domain, where patients can choose to go to their orthodox practitioner and be limited to a consensus you know, checklist medicine, or to their unorthodox practitioner who uses best available, all available evidence medicine. And people should be able to have that choice, freely make that choice, and then we'll see what happens to the orthodox medicine and how it copes with competition. And of course, it'll first work by, by smearing the unorthodox competition. And you know, when rational people see smear is not counter evidence, then that, you know, the competition will improve and then eventually the orthodox medicine will have to modulate into doing better than it does. So, you know, there's some hurdles, as you, you're kind of intimating here. Um, what, what's, the, what's the single best thing that can, can happen now to help overcome these in your mind? For, you know, because people are watching. Public pressure. Mm -hmm. Public pressure. People voting with their feet, voting with their wallets, you know, choosing the course of medical care that they want and choosing the course of outrage against the system as it is that they want. That, to me, the control of, of medicine into substandard medical care because of enforcement of checklists of generic ways of treating people and not as individuals has crippled quality medical care. And it gets away with it because of enforcement and because of lack of competition. So, so many doctors today have been, you know, primary care and internists and family care and so on, first line care medicine have been bought up by practices, by corporate medicine, who enforce treatment limitations. You know, medical care practices say you can't prescribe ivermectin, you can't prescribe hydroxychloroquine, you can't treat COVID patients, all these kinds of things that, well, how would you ever, as a patient, get medical care that you need if you're part of a care system that says you can't be treated for things that are, that are treatable, right? You, you vote with your feet. You, you, you write a letter or put an angry call to the CEO of that healthcare system, tell them you're leaving, and you go and find care somewhere else that treats you as a real person with dignity and compassion and, and good quality care. Well, Dr. Harvey Rich, it's always good to have you on. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
Thank you all for joining Dr. Harvey Rish and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Thank you.